Welcome to This Civic Moment, where we dive headfirst into the issues affecting our communities and explore the possibilities of our civic future with local and regional leaders. I'm Bethany Copeland. And I'm Eric Ryder. We're graduate fellows with the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for being with us today. Today, we're speaking with Dr. John Inazu, the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion and Professor of Political Science at WashU, where he teaches criminal law, law and religion, and various First Amendment seminars. His scholarship focuses on the First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion, and related questions of legal and political theory. He is the author of Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, and Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference, and co-editor of Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. Dr. Anazu holds a BSE and JD from Duke University and a PhD in political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He clerked for Judge Roger L. Woolman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit and served for four years as an Associate General Counsel with the Department of the Air Force at the Pentagon. His weekly newsletter, Some Assembly Required, can be found at johninazu.substack.com. Welcome, Dr. Inazu. We usually begin our podcast by asking guests about their early life and childhood. Could you tell us a little bit about your growing up and the values instilled in you that ignited your path towards the intersections of religion, politics, and the law? Sure. Uh, and thanks for having me here. I, you know, probably a big part of my growing up was my dad was in the Army, and so we moved all the time. I think I moved 11 places before college. Oh, wow. And so it was often getting to a new place, meeting new people. And in some ways, that ties into my current work about just engaging across difference because I had no choice. Um, and then uh, I think, I mean, I was also a pretty lonely kid growing up. So I think mm-hmm. trying to see the significance of what authentic community looks like and how to encourage that in other people has become a big value for me. Yeah. And um, I know that you you did start your career uh, after school. You worked for the military, correct? Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about that journey? And sure. What, like I, if the family part led you there or if there was something else that inspired that decision? Yeah, so the, the main reason was that when I was getting ready to go to college, my, my parents said we were living in Colorado at the time, and they said you can go to any school in Colorado and we'll pay for it, or you can go anywhere else in the country and you have to figure out how to pay for it. And that meant I ended up going to Duke University, and the way to pay for it was through an ROTC scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so – I, uh, I ended up uh, doing that and was then commissioned into the military upon graduation. And I'd, I'd studied engineering in college, and I realized I, I quickly that I wasn't much of an engineering mm-hmm. <laughs> student or person. And so I, I kind of uh, slogged through that because I really loved Duke, but not so much engineering. And then at the end of that time, uh, really chose law school as kind of an escape hatch from engineering. I didn't know any lawyers. No one in my family had practiced law, but I knew it wasn't engineering. And so I uh, negotiated with the Air Force to do a delay Mm -hmm. to go ahead and get my law degree. 
And then after law school, served four years at the Pentagon as an active duty attorney. And that was a much better fit for me than being an engineering officer somewhere. (laughs) Right. Well, and then so what was the impetus for you to move from the practice of law to the study of teaching? And how does your experience in the courtroom impact and influence your career in the classroom? Yeah, so I was in law school as a pretty mediocre law student. I didn't, whatever tricks you need to do well on exams, I never figured out. And it wasn't until legal practice that I, it finally clicked with me and I realized I do like the law. I was a good litigator. I was a good lawyer. And so I really kind of fell in love with the law. But but after four years at the Pentagon where every issue is sort of the issue of the day mm-hmm. and of, of utmost importance and making the national news, the pace just felt pretty exhausting. And so I started to think maybe I'm more wired to be more reflective, to, to think more, to write more. And that's what that's what took me toward a teaching path. And it was a long journey for me. I had to go back and do a PhD and some other things along the way. Uh, but, but I'm really grateful for the practice time because now when I'm, especially when I'm teaching law students, I can use a lot of illustrations and examples from legal practice. And, and we're talking about training professionals who are going to be engaged in a craft and in a high stakes craft. So being able to talk about lessons learned from my own career, you know, highs and lows, trials and errors. That's really been a big part of my teaching law. Yeah. Yeah. um, In your book, Confident Pluralism, you stress the importance of bridging divisions across our civic lives. How do you think civic engagement practices can help bring people together in an authentic way? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying we we really need them these days, and I think <laughs> yeah. um, we we need to get busy practicing them so that we can do them in real life. And uh, I think you know you, you mentioned the word authentic. I think that's so key to what we're talking about. This is we we're not in a place where we can fake uh, civic practices. I mean, people have just lost patience with that, and uh, the stakes are too high. So, what does it mean actually to sit down with relationships? Uh, uh, with people with whom we disagree and to focus on those relationships. And I think it, uh, you know, I'm increasingly pessimistic about uh, on a national level of getting this done, but at Mm -hmm. a local level when we see other actual human beings and we're shopping at the same grocery stores and eating at the same restaurants and seeing them, you know, around Forest Park or something, that 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 creates the potential to learn uh, about someone else who's not like us. And I think, I mean, one of my mantras is I can always find something to learn from the person that's sitting across me, regardless of how annoying I find them, regardless of how much we disagree. There's another human being who has lived life differently and probably has something to teach me. And so I think that kind of posture can begin to soften some of our relationships across difference. But I'll be honest, it feels like it's all gotten a lot harder in the last Mm -hmm. few years and a lot of, you know, COVID, national politics, a lot of things have made this much more complicated in real life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you've spoken about kind of your academic path and your legal path, but you also heavily focus on religion. And so how does that part weave into your work and your story? Yeah. So, you know, what first comes to mind is my friend Ibu Patel, who runs an organization called Interfaith America, and he's one of the nation's leading experts on religious pluralism. And one of Ibu's real guiding principles is that we have to bring our full faith identities to public discourse. And we, we need to move beyond kind of a 1990s sort of multiculturalism that pretended the differences don't matter. And mm-hmm. so Ibu is a Muslim. I'm a Christian. 
We've done a bunch of speaking around the country, and we we highlight and prioritize our religious differences, not to discount them, but to say these matter tremendously, and we can still be friends. And so in my own professional and personal life, I try to come with who I am and try to encourage others to find that sort of authentic commitment. And it will necessarily create friction and divides in a place like Wash U or any any entity that is pluralistic and brings lots of people with difference. We're not all going to agree and some of our disagreements are going to be profound and costly and cause hurt feelings. But much better to say, here's who we are trying to figure out this out together than to pretend that the differences aren't there. So that's one of sort of what I try to focus on in my own work. Yeah. And that leads nicely into our next question because you are a Christian and your faith is important in your work and personal life. Um, and we saw that you were a th- senior fellow with Interfaith America. And so this is an organization which promotes America's religious diversity. So rather than sticking to insular Christian circles, what made you interested in the work of Interfaith America and kind of build off of that of like what makes you excited about their work? Yeah, I mean, so partly, honestly, I I love Ibu. I love his organization. I love his people. They're committed to what they do and they're very good at what they do. And that that attracts me, that kind of excellence and passion for their work. But I also think there's a there's a real urgency in this country to model and engage in these differences. We're only getting more pluralistic. When you look at immigration trends, when you look at the rise of non-believers in this country, we're, we're going to have more and more friction between religions, between religion and non-religion, and we're just going to have to figure out how to live together in that because it's a social reality for the rest of our lives, for sure. And I see Interfaith America as leading the way in some of that work, but also, and this relates a little bit to you know our environment at a place like Washington University, one of Ibu's main talking points is that today's modern university does a great job in training and preparing students in diversity of all kinds, and that's really important, and we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go, but we've come a long way, but they, they, they miss tremendously when it comes to religious diversity, and your average student graduating from a place like Washington University will have almost no literacy on religious difference. We'll have experienced very little of that in the classroom. And that's that's kind of on us. I mean, that, that seems like a failure of our institutional goals if we produce graduates who have almost no knowledge of religious difference and religious pluralism when many of the world's problems and challenges in in real life are caused by and perpetuated by those differences. So to have a kind of understanding and empathy, a recognition that in the workplace or in your neighborhood or on your soccer team, you're bound to encounter religious difference and to, to help train our students better to navigate that seems like a worthy cause and effort. Definitely. Uh, Your scholarship focuses on the First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion, which are hot topics of American (laughs) politics generally. Uh, Specifically, your research on the freedom of assembly is deeply connected to our local history that ignited a national movement, the murder of Michael Brown in 2014, and the public protests in Ferguson that followed. In an article that you wrote entitled Unlawful Assembly as Social Control in 2016, you discuss that contemporary understandings of unlawful assembly cede too much discretion to law enforcement by neglecting earlier statutory and common law elements that once constrained liability. 
In an article in USA Today, you state, preserving a society where individuals can congregate, exercise their rights in groups, and challenge the status quo is critical to preserving a robust democracy. Uh, You recommend, in your words, a more measured approach to unlawful assembly. What does that look like to you? Yeah, so I think here the the bar is pretty low in our in our contemporary society. A lot of our unlawful assembly laws are either poorly written or not well understood by law enforcement who has to enforce those laws. And and Ferguson's a great example in some of the later protests here in St. Louis where law enforcement on the ground just did not have an understanding of what the actual Missouri and local laws were on unlawful assembly. And if you don't know, I mean if you're if you're the person on the ground with control of a situation and with the state's authority to back you, you really want to know what your parameters are. Because in the moment, and you know, credit to law enforcement that is there in the moment and has to make really important decisions on very little notice and sometimes with little facts, but at least you want to set up the framework to do that as well as possible. And in my experience, particularly locally, we have not had the adequate training about what the laws are. And so I think better training, better re-examining of the laws and to figure out what purpose they serve. My, my own sense is that if we're going to have a kind of society that values dissent and protest, then that necessarily means bringing in a degree of instability. It doesn't mean you tolerate violence. It doesn't mean you put law enforcement in harm's way, but it does mean you allow for people to feel uneasy, that protests can manifest often expressively and emotively, and that's okay. And I, I think we have almost a, sometimes a, a cultural divide between what feels safe and proper and what feels actually real and emotive in a moment. And in a protest situation, you have to let that emotion breathe, even if it makes people feel uncomfortable. So I think a big part of protest law and regulation is reexamining that. And then uh, on the side of law enforcement to recognize what are the appropriate safety measures to take, knowing that today, unlike, say, 200 years ago, you have credible reinforcements that can be on the way pretty quickly. So in the old days, unlawful assembly laws in the early territories and states were really designed around the lack of local law enforcement. You had the sheriff in town who might be overrun and who had to call the posse in for reinforcements. And today it's just, in many situations, quite different. You have heavy, heavy militarized and armed police departments. You've got other law enforcement and, and backups that could come. And it doesn't make it easy, but it, I think it, it resituates the players and it makes us maybe think differently about how we approach the laws in the first place. So I think there's there's quite a bit of room for reform. There's some appetite for reform, but it, it, we're going to have to see bipartisan and mutual efforts to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When that article, I believe, was written in 2016 and now we're in 2023, have you seen any progress on some of these reforms on trainings um, that are moving in the direction that you would like to see in the seven years since you, since you wrote that article? That's crazy to hear you say seven years because it doesn't <laughs> feel like that long ago. You know, um, I, I do think that groups like Arch City Defenders here locally are doing meaningful policy work and there is some uh, litigation designed to test some of these laws. I think that's really important. On the other hand, and this is where I get a little wary of some of the activist divides that are, are looking maybe less for collaborations and more more, more for statements that uh, a kind of activism that leads to complete police withdrawal from an area is not the solution that anybody wants, including the, the residents of those areas. And we've seen 
examples recently where the lack of where, where, where law enforcement has said, fine, if you want to put all these constraints for us, we're just going to pull back and, and let things go their own way. That's not a very good solution either, especially for the most vulnerable people in society. And so I think a, a kind of measured agreement and compromise that recognizes, again, that that necessary instability and emotivism in a protest situation, but also also looks to partner with everybody involved instead of instead of defining people as the enemy out of the gates. And I think we've got a long way to go on that sort of work. Uh, you also founded a nonprofit, the Carver Project, whose mission it is to connect students to community engagement through their Christian faith, through working toward uh, uncommon community focused engagement and creative dialogue. What are some examples of this kind of engagement and dialogue and how do you define uncommon community? Yeah. So um, in in addition to students, we've got a faculty focus too, and this relates to some of our earlier conversations about facilitating and encouraging authentic communities. And, And one of the intuitions behind the Carver project is that in, in many cities today and St. Louis is a good example, you've got, powerful social institutions and local universities and local churches and religious communities, but a mutual distrust among those. So you see sometimes the the university looking at churches and thinking those are those backwards people that are, you know, don't care about other people. And you see the churches think that the universities are those places that threaten faith. And And I think for especially Christian faculty and also students who are engaged and immersed in both worlds, there's a sense of seeing the good in both places and seeing the potential of, of partnership in both places. So that's one example, I think, of the kind of community when we can bring faith leaders together with university leaders and say, how can we meaningfully work for the betterment of our city? And it means sometimes we're not always going to have common ground because sometimes our, our purposes and missions and values will lead us elsewhere, but there are going to be places where we can partner effectively and let's maximize and step into those kinds of places. And then the other thing I think is uh, probably evident in, in other faith traditions, but I know it best through Christianity, is the, the idea that in community and doing the work that this takes all kinds of people. And so when I'm working with students in the classroom, especially in the law school environment, there's a very formal distinction between the professor and the students. But when we're collaborating the same people in the context of the Carver Project or similar communities, we can we can work more side by side. It, it feels much more collaborative. It feels very unique because it's sort of uh, it's it's uh, it's upending some of the traditional social divides between faculty and students. And then you can you know community members and and people elsewhere in the university. And that's been one of the most gratifying pieces of this work is being together, doing difficult and slow work together with a group of people that are no longer uh, divided by the typical and expected social roles. And kind of speaking to those divides, professors in academic institutions are often seen in like sitting in this ivory tower kind of mindset, and your work does focus on bringing people together. So what does that look like, and how do you overcome kind of any any divide that people might feel from you of being a professor at Washington yeah. University in St. Louis um, and kind of getting more involved in, in community? Yeah, so, I mean, a couple of things there. One, I think, and I've said this before, and so it's probably not a secret, but I think 
university faculty in general are kind of low on social skills and high on ego. And that makes a very <laughs> difficult combination when you're trying to partner with other people. So I think encouraging faculty, I mean, part of it's to, we're just sometimes very awkward in different settings. So trying to encourage just normal human action. We don't, we don't always have to be talking about our latest theories or scholarly work. Like some people, sometimes people just want to talk about, you know, sports or whatever, and that we, yeah. we should be able to do that, uh, do that well. And, uh, and then, I mean, I, I, I find in my own life, particularly trying to bridge the worlds of the university and Christian communities because of that mutual distrust, I, I don't, I rarely feel fully at home in either world. And so that can be, that can lead to a kind of sense of isolation, but I think finding other people who are in my lane is helpful to remember that we're, we're constantly trying to build bridges, trying to translate back and forth, trying to see, the good in both directions without without papering over some of the challenges or even the bad and I think um, I mean I'm not I'm not really a I don't think I'm an optimist I'm a ho- I'm a hopeful person but I'm also a realist and so mm-hmm. I, I can see a lot of the pathologies and challenges in both the university as an institution and in churches as institutions and so trying to be realistic about what some of the impediments are but also looking to bridge those yeah. And we as a country are arguing and grappling with how to talk about and teach history. And you've written about the importance of the stories we tell about history and how these stories shape our perspectives and influence the way we interact with the world. As a scholar, how do you approach such divisive and polarizing topics? Yeah, you know, that's such an important question. And and part of it for me is, starting with the premise that none of this is neutral, that that even, you know, I, I teach largely in the humanities, but there are very few disciplines. I mean, I suppose math maybe where you're just teaching basic math might be neutral, but most of what we do is, is not neutral. We're making decisions every step of the way in terms of the syllabus, the curriculum, the assignments, the, the emphasis we place in teaching, and, uh, and, and all of those decisions faculty, and this is at all levels because what you're talking about is often extended to secondary ed and, and lower classes as well, faculty and teachers are making non-neutral decisions, and the best we can do is ask them to do that with integrity, with an awareness of their own biases as much as possible, and, and with a commitment to the craft of teaching, which in many cases is going to be to expose students to reaching conclusions on their own, which doesn't mean relativism, but it does mean critical thinking that puts the best possible arguments of both sides on the table. And and there are good and bad examples of that. And so I think as teachers, we need to encourage each other to do more of the good and, and less of the bad. And then I, I do think there's a related uh, political dynamic to much of this in, in many places and, and to insist against some of the politics that even though we are in non-neutral spaces, we we we're here because we've been trained to teach and teaching is a kind of enterprise that is quite different than politics. And and you have to ultimately trust the teachers in what they're doing. And, and I think, I think for students, especially fundamentally the classroom relies on a kind of, of trust. And, And my students have to trust me about the decisions I'm making that I care about them and their learning that I'm not trying to be an ideologue and, and that I'm committed to, these higher values of the craft of educating. And without that trust, it doesn't matter what kind of tactics or techniques I pull, it's, it's not going to work in the classroom. Yeah, and kind of building off of that real quick, 
I do feel like that's something that I've seen shift is that trust in teachers. And once that trust is broken, how are we rebuilding that? Any suggestions? There? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I share your sense that that trust is is increasingly broken. I, th- I mean, part of it, I think it, the responsibility lies in both directions. I do think students and the current student generation needs to come in with a with with a, at least a good faith presumption that the moves that faculty are making are well intended, pedagogically useful, even if they can't quite see it in the moment. I've got plenty of students who come back to me several years down the road and they say, oh, you know, I, I finally now understand why you did this, right? And, and sometimes it takes time and experience to situate a particular lesson. Uh, so that's part of it. But then I also think teachers need to do the hard work of relearning their students each year. The best book I've read on this is Ken Bain's book, What the Best College Teachers Do. And one of Bain's points is, you know, it doesn't matter how well you know the material, how good of a teacher you are, every single year is going to be a different learning experience because the students are going to be different. They were raised in different environments. They come together to form a different collective. And you've got to do the hard work every single year of figuring out what that unique dynamic is. And I think if, if you don't, then part of it's on you for failing to, to you know, and I, I sometimes hear colleagues say, well, students these days have changed so much. And, you know, maybe they have, but that's that should just be an opportunity for good teaching to double down and, and relearn what it means to relate to a particular demographic of students. And I, I think there's 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 good work being done out there, but there's there's more work to do. And I think I would love to see people in my shoes as faculty have more of a priority on reimagining, recreating what the classroom experience looks like instead of kind of relying upon old tried and true practices because those practices might have worked great five or ten years ago and they might absolutely fall flat today. And incumbent on, I think, the jobs we hold is to do the hard work of making sure they're still connecting. Mm. Um, and then uh, we always like to ask our guests one final question, which is, what is currently giving you hope? Ah, that's a, well, that's a great question. I mean, certainly my Christian faith gives me hope because I, I think for me that sort of shadows and colors what I try to do in all of life. But, uh, but I also, I mean, my students, I, I am very hopeful when I engage with my students. I teach both undergraduates and law students here at Washington University. And for the most part, they're very bright. They're very passionate and committed. And unlike what I sometimes read in the media about what this student generation is supposed to be like, I don't find that uh, with my own classrooms at all. I find very curious students who are wanting and willing to ask hard issues and hard questions, who, who I think themselves sometimes feel stifled in the university environment and don't always feel outlets. But in, in classroom settings, there's there's great discussion and there's a lot of enthusiasm. And even in the midst of some challenging uh, you know, politics nationally and internationally, a sense that, yeah, they've got a role to play. They're eager to lead. And, and that gives me a lot of, of confidence. Well, thank you so much yeah, for being with you. us today. We really appreciate the conversation. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being with us as we dive into this civic moment. 
You can find the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to This Civic Moment everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to drop a five-star review and give us your feedback in the comments. You can also support This Civic Moment and the Gephardt Institute with your monetary gifts at gephardtinstitute.wistle.edu. We'll see you next time.